large language models exhibit a number of surprising abilities. In particular, they seem to know some facts about the world that might involve things like physical intuition, such as what happens when you push a block across a table. It turns out that we do describe many physical phenomena in language. Furthermore, when we perform instruction tuning or RLHF and language models, their utterances do start to more closely map the world as we experience it. Raphael Millier and Dimitri Molo think that human feedback complementing unsupervised learning endows modern large language models with a notion of referential grounding that allows their vector representations of words to hook onto the world and acquire intrinsic meaning that doesn't depend on humans interpreting a system's inputs and outputs. I wanted to better understand how Professor Melier thinks about notions of grounding, so I had him on to speak about his recent paper, The Vector Grounding Problem. We also got into his PhD work on consciousness and self-consciousness, and how these ideas might map on to how we think about AI systems. This is the Gradient Podcast, and I am your host, Daniel Bashir. If you enjoy these episodes, you can follow us wherever you're listening to this podcast episode. You can also follow us on Substack to get regular notifications whenever we release a new article, newsletter, or podcast episode. You can also find our online magazine at thegradient.pub, where we regularly publish essays by the sorts of people I interview on the podcast. And finally, if you enjoy the episode, it would mean a great deal to us all if you'd consider leaving us a review on whatever podcast player you're using to listen to this episode. It helps more listeners like you find what we're doing and helps us bring in more interesting guests for you to listen to. But now, without further ado, Raphael Melier. Professor Melier, I think that for me, the combination of ideas, the work that you're doing is probably some of the most interesting that I've encountered recently. And so I'd love to hear a little bit about your background and how you started thinking about AI in the first place. Sure. Um, So I have a bit of an unusual trajectory, I suppose, for someone working on AI, uh, because I have a background as a, as an academic philosopher, so I uh, I have a PhD in philosophy. Uh, but very early on, even before my PhD and during my PhD, I've started uh, working a lot at the crossroads between different uh, disciplines, including uh, scientific disciplines. So I have been working uh, with cognitive scientists and neuroscientists during my PhD, um, and increasingly working on some issues that had some overlap with computer science. And then during, uh, when I got hired by, by Columbia University, I, I focused more um, uh, specifically on that kind of collaboration. But my in- initial interest in AI, I would say that I've had a very long-standing interest in, in computer science and artificial intelligence, even before I started studying philosophy. Um, I, like many people, you, you know, when I was a, uh, uh, young, I dabbled in, in programming as uh, very simple things in my case. And then uh, I kept uh, following with great interest 
progress in uh, AI research from a distance, especially since 2012 and uh, the kind of triumph of machine learning, uh, uh, first in computer vision and then in other in other domains. And uh, when I started my PhD at Oxford, um, I had this side project where I had this large corpus. I, I kind of discovered the existence of this large corpus of reports um, that were of interest to me for my philosophical research uh, because these were reports of states in which um, self-representation is disrupted by uh, the, uh, the the intake of, of uh, psychoactive compounds. So I had this, you know, I scraped this uh, database that has about 30,000 reports, and I was thinking it's a shame that uh, um, this database exists and it's way too big to be analyzed qualitatively uh by you know by researchers um but it's a shame that no one is doing anything scientific with this and so i thought well perhaps the progress of nlp of natural language processing could help here i had been following this again from a distance but i thought maybe that's an opportunity to uh try to use these algorithms and see what i could do so this was in around 2015 it was before the transformer paper it was before large language models uh but basically i took that opportunity to um delve into this and actually train myself to um, use state-of-the-art models at the time, train my own model on this corpus. So I, I trained um, a doc2vec model, uh, so a bit like a what2vec or a mailing model with, with vectors for documents as well. I also experimented with uh, some topic modeling techniques um, like uh, LDA uh, and a few other techniques, and I landed on doc2vec. And then, so I had this this project where I I modeled um, the effects described in these different reports automatically with this custom model that I trained. And that really got me hooked because, uh, first of all, I found the process really interesting and, and uh, enjoyable, um, even from a te technical perspective, and actually getting to know um, <clears throat> how to, to, to you know, fiddle with hyperparameters, train models myself, and so on was very interesting. But beyond that, and most importantly, I thought there are some really interesting theoretical questions related to this kind of model that have been underexplored in philosophy. There is some old work in philosophy that we all know about, uh, you know, around the Chinese room experiment and things like that, that uh, related to previous symbolic models, uh, including NLP models. But um, there was really a dearth of uh, in-depth philosophical work that taking into account recent developments in NLP, specifically with um, machine learning models like Doc2Vec, Vortuvec, and others. Uh, so I thought there are some really interesting questions here. For example, these models represent words as vectors in a high-dimensional vector space. To what extent can we say that this kind of representation captures something about the meaning of words? Um, so I started thinking about this, and... Um, from that moment already, so back in 2015, 2016, I thought at some point I would like to um, work on this not just as a tool for this side project where I'm just you know using these these models in an instrumental fashion, but really focus on the philosophical questions that these models raise. Um, and I got this golden opportunity when I finished my PhD and GPT-3 was unveiled by OpenAI. Uh, and I thought, okay, this is, this is something really big happening here. Like this is a... This is a key opportunity to to really shift my focus pretty much full time to working on these issues, and so and so this is what I did. I first wrote this uh, public essay uh, in the magazine Nautilus on GPT three. Uh, the summer it came out, and then um, started working on on more um, 
academic papers uh, related to various philosophical questions raised by large language models and other models. Um, so essentially, that's how I came to, to work on that. I think we'll get to this in a lot more detail once we come to the vector grounding problem. But one thing I have observed in looking at the ways that you and other researchers are approaching some of the philosophical questions surrounding AI today is that in a lot of ways, I think these become, these philosophical questions kind of morph into not just questions about the AI systems themselves, but about our capacities as humans. And I think that there is this kind of two-way reflection, right? Given maybe humans have some relation to the world itself or state of the world, and we have a theory about that, what might that say about language models? Or given that we believe language models have particular capacities, what inferences do we then make about humans? And I, I feel like that kind of draws into a number of things, but especially when thinking about we are trying to create these systems that maybe we would like to have vaguely human capacities, however we define that, in describing things about their relationship to the world and thinking about meaning, it does feel a little bit hard to escape, especially because humans are involved in creating training data and providing feedback for these models, whether humans have the kinds of relationships to the world we think they do. And I think that can kind of drive one down a whole rabbit hole of, of metaphysics or other epistemological questions. And so at a high level, before we get into detail on this later, I'm curious to what extent these concerns factor in your work. Are you maybe a little bit more of a pragmatist where you have um, maybe the commitment that our, our mind's description of the world, our mind's understanding of the world basically reflects the way the world really is, which I think is, is key in a lot of kind of metaphysical theories, or do you maybe have some sympathies for the folks who come along and are like, maybe this isn't the case? Right. Um, that's a great question. First of all, I, I am interested in the, the relationship between deep learning models and human cognition in both directions. So I do think, um, of course, that taking insights from the philosophy of mind and cognitive science to look at the capacities and limitations of uh, deep learning models, such as large language models, is important. And, um, you know, I, I I have obviously a lot of uh, um, admiration and, and follow very closely a lot of, of technical work in computer science, but some, sometimes it can be a little, uh, you know, for lack of a better phrase, um, a philosophically naive or perhaps naive from the standpoint of cognitive science where it... Um, you know, borrow some of some concepts like uh, attention, memory, and so on, without necessarily always critically examining how these relates to the way in which these concepts are used in cognitive science and philosophy, um, and uh, or, or you know, kind of rediscovering old debates like the grounding problem uh, without always going back to uh, its uh, roots in philosophy and cognitive science. That uh, I think can be helpful to um, inform current discussions. So uh, I think it's important to look at it in that direction when we when it comes to ascribing certain competencies, certain capacities um, to large language models or other um, deep learning models, uh, we ought to look at, 
human cognition uh, uh, and also, I would say, non-human animal cognition uh, and infant cognition. So look at also comparative psychology and developmental psychology to inform uh, at least our methods and the kind of uh, uh, methodological principles we follow to make this kind of description. So that's one thing I'm very interested in. And I will have a lot to say about this because I think the, the discussion on this kind of issue unfortunately tends to be at least in the public discourse on social media and in public essays and op-eds very polarized where very quickly people gravitate towards two extreme which is either these models are stochastic parrots that have that show no sign of intelligence whatsoever or they are harbingers of superhuman intelligence and there's a very rich middle ground that i'm personally very interested in exploring uh, again adopting this kind of empiricist attitude taking capacities on a case-by-case basis and drawing inspiration from um, cognitive science, comparative psychology, developmental psychology, and philosophy to to make this kind of uh, ascription. So that's the first direction. And then as you rightly pointed out, I, I do think there are some really interesting questions in the other direction. When we look at what current models do, and they do really impressive, remarkable things that, uh, you know, we tend to, or our tendency to be impressed um, should be, of course, questioned. We shouldn't, uh, uh, you know, be too too impressed or too impressionables and, and give way to anthropomorphism. But we also shouldn't forget that we tend to get used to the kind of remarkable things these models can do. Uh, our initial um, our, our initial uh, surprise tends to, uh, to to get normalized over time. But but these models can do really impressive things. So given that they can do these things uh, in various domains that uh, were once thought to be things that only humans could do. What does that say about our current theories about uh, of human cognition? Could we perhaps take inspiration from what we know about how these models work uh, to perhaps revise certain ideas about what we think uh, human cognition uh, uh, is, 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 is organized and, and, and how we think uh, various aspects of the, the human cognitive architecture um, works. So I'm interested in that that second direction as well. Um, and I think uh, a number of other people uh, are too. Um, so now I'm forgetting your, uh, perhaps the more substantive part of your of your question, uh, which is about metaphysics. Could you could just uh, remind me what? Yes, of course. So that was more about, I think that a lot of the questions we deal with when it comes to LLMs and their relationship to the world, humans have to come in as a mediator of some sort, pretty much always in curating training data and providing feedback as an RLHF or instruction tuning methods. And so when we start to ponder these questions of, well, do LLMs possess some sort of meaning? What is their relationship to the world? I think that also necessitates the question, well, do humans have the kind of relationship to the world we think they do? Does the structure of the world as it exists in our mind um, necessarily reflect the structure of the world as it really is. And so I'm curious to what extent those questions also kind of come into your thinking in all of this. Right. Yes. Yeah. So um, I, I, I tend to try to uh, avoid getting too uh, bogged down into this, this deep, you know, uh, metaphysical questions because um I don't think we necessarily need to to get into that to um, to make headway on 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 uh, uh, substantive questions about how language models 
might come to uh, acquire meaningful representations uh, uh, like like humans do. Um, so, you know, questions about um, realist versus uh, non-realist views in metaphysics, things like that, um, I don't think are a necessary stopping point in the in the in, on the path to to answering the kind of questions that I'm interested in. Um, the the work in philosophy that I draw more inspiration from uh, pertains to the philosophy of language and and philosophical theories of representations uh, of representation. Sorry. Um, that say, I mean, there there are some uh, there there are some some claims in the vicinity of what you discussed that uh, come up in my in my thinking on these issues. Um, for example, when you think about how um, humans come to acquire uh, meaningful representations of the world, there are questions about whether certain kinds of of structures, uh, structured domains in the world, have a certain structure that is reflected in the structure of uh, representations in the human mind. So there are, you know, there is there is a, a lot of work in philosophy about um, how um, correspondence or morphisms come into play in ascribing representational content where uh, the um, structure of uh, certain uh, representations in the, in the human mind seems to, uh, and, you know, things that can be investigated even in, 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 in neuroscience, uh, looking at cognitive maps, for example, uh, you know, reflects the structure of the world, for example, the spatial structure of the world. Um, and to the extent that your question, ex- you know, uh, would, would, would extend to, to this kind of, of question about, uh, the extent to which the, some, some aspects of the structure of representations in the, in the human mind or brain reflects the structure of, uh, some domains in the world. Um, that, that is, that is one aspect, uh, one related question that I think about, but the, the really deep philosophical question about whether, um, say we uh, experience the world as it really is, or something along these lines. Um, I think it's perhaps a little too uh, general and abstract to uh, directly inform uh, uh, the kind of uh, you know uh, the, the kind of question I'm interested in when it comes to to language roles. I hope hope that makes sense. That makes a lot of sense to me. I think that when it comes to what is the project of developing these sorts of systems, you can, or somebody could drag themselves down all sorts of rabbit holes, but there is, there's something that has to be a little bit pragmatic, I suppose, when we are trying to develop, develop these systems to have the capacities we might like them to eventually to act in the world in certain ways. Well, we humans are capable of acting in the world, whatever you think about the relationship between our mind and, you know, things in themselves or whatever pet theory you'd like to pick up. And so I suppose just for the sake of allowing ourselves to get our, get ourselves off the ground, you know, pun intended with that, we do have to assume some kind of regulative capacities, I suppose. And that whatever the status is of whether we really understand the world down to the very basics, the full structure of everything, we are capable of acting in it. And so that's, I guess, the best signal, the best ground truth we could hope for. 
Yes, uh, I, 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 uh, I agree with that. I mean, it's again there is there is um, yeah, there are many uh, centuries of, of uh, discussions in, in, in metaphysics about these issues. There are some very fine grained discussions that exist in contemporary metaphysics about some of these issues. But uh, I'm happy to put that to the side a little bit and focus on more specific questions pertaining to. Um, um, say the acquisition of representations and description of representational contents in systems, both uh, biological and artificial systems. So let's start working our way towards some of these questions in more detail. But where I'd love to start is during your PhD, you did a lot of very interesting work on self-consciousness. And a particular sort that I think has maybe some a lot of interest possibly for our audience too, because we've had a few discussions here and over the past couple of years of what does consciousness, what does sentience mean when it comes to LLMs? Are there gradations of that? What does consciousness necessarily involve? You had some work that looked at does consciousness constitutively involve self-consciousness and awareness of self? And I guess for me, that kind of reminds me um, of Avicenna's like flying man thought experiment, I know kind of starts to dive into some of these questions. And so I find that a, a sort of interesting way to come at the same question. But I guess I'd love to hear you introduce some of the work you did on this relationship between consciousness and self-consciousness and how that might start to bear on some of these questions that we're thinking about. Uh, yeah, so in my doctoral work and in related uh, philosophical and empirical papers, I've investigated the relationship between consciousness and self-consciousness, as, as you just said, and I've argued on the basis of both theoretical and empirical considerations that consciousness does not constitutively involve self-consciousness, meaning that uh, one can be conscious, have conscious experiences, without being thereby conscious of oneself as such. Uh, and so being conscious in itself is not sufficient necessarily for uh, being conscious of oneself as such, uh, even though in the ordinary wakeful state, um, arguably, we do have this kind of pervasive awareness of ourselves that comes through, um, for example, bodily experiences and spatial experiences. Um, so part of that there are different strands in that research. So one of one of them is I defended this pluralist account of self-consciousness, according to which there are several ways in which we can and we do represent ourselves as such. Um, and these ought not to be conflated, as they often are in the literature, when people talk about the sense of self or self-consciousness as a monolithical notion. I think we can actually um, have a more kind of divide-and-conquer strategy where we distinguish between uh, different kinds of self-consciousness or different ways of being conscious of oneself as such. So, for example, uh, as I suggested earlier, we when we have bodily sensations, uh, many people think this comes with a kind of phenomenology of bodily ownership, meaning that we have a sense of the body part in which we experience the sensation be, being our own. Um, uh, most pe most people, philosophers in this literature, kind of describe this as an affective experience. So we have this affective experience of 
uh, our bodies as our own that seems to pervade our bodily experiences. So perhaps right now, as you're listening to this podcast, you're sitting in a chair or doing something and you have bodily sensations and these don't feel like they are free floating as it were, but they feel located in your body. And there's something about these sensations that is distinctively different from uh, perhaps other kinds of experiences you have about the world, because this really seems to be, seem to be about you in some, in some substantive sense. So if you think that there is such a, a sense of bodily ownership, that's one form of self-consciousness, consciousness of your body, your body parts as your own, that is seems fairly pervasive in ordinary experience. Uh, then there is what I call spatial self-consciousness. Um, so if you think about the spatial content of perceptual experiences, particularly visual experiences, as I'm uh, seeing the world right now, I'm looking at my screen, I, I see my screen as being in front of my uh, perspective on the world, so in front of me in some sense. Uh, so my visual experience, as all of our visual experiences, is structured by an egocentric frame of reference uh, that has a point of origin with respect to which the location of various landmarks in, in the environment are represented, uh, in, again, in, this, in, in an egocentric way with, refer, with reference to that, that point of origin. Um, and so I've argued that that actually underlies a form of uh, a very basic form of self-representation, which is simply you know perceiving the desk or the screen as being in front of where I am, uh, uh, for example. Um, and so that spatial self-consciousness also something that you might you might expect to be fairly pervasive in ordinary experience. And then there are more sophisticated cognitive forms of self-consciousness, like thinking of oneself as such. Um, so if I ponder. The kind of traits that I have, you know, perhaps my height, my name, uh, my career, whatever. Um, this seems to make use of a self-concept that is deployed in thinking uh, about oneself as such. This self-concept itself is multifaceted. Some of the properties that I ascribe to myself are physical properties, like my height. Others are non-physical properties, like perhaps uh, being a philosopher or things like that. Um, but importantly, that that kind of more cognitive form of self-consciousness doesn't seem to be as pervasive in ordinary experience. Uh, unless you're an extreme narcissist, you're not constantly thinking of yourself as such. And also, it seems to be the kind of more sophisticated capacity that we might now describe to non-human animals. Whereas things like spatial and bodily self-consciousness, perhaps we could uh, uh, meaningfully and usefully ascribe to many non-human animals because being aware of your location in space and being aware of your body as distinct from the external world are things that seem to be very useful uh, for the survival of an organism, just to uh, know where you are, know who, what, what part of your environment is you and what part of your environment is, is the external world. Um, these are very basic, phenomenal things. So I've been interested in tracing back the origins of self-representation by uh, looking more specifically at these very fundamental basic forms of self-representation, like spatial and bodily self-representation, uh, which presumably might emerge um, fairly early on, both uh, from, an, from an evolutionary perspective uh, uh, in our evolutionary ancestors uh, and being things that are shared with uh, our cousins in, in, in uh, other species, but also uh, from a developmental perspective, you think of young children, babies, they will do things like grab, grab their own feet to kind of uh, 
sample evidence about whether this is part of me or this is part of the external world and so on. Um, and I did this because a lot of pe people in philosophy approach questions about self-consciousness from the other end by looking at more sophisticated um, forms of self-representation first that might be uniquely human, like using the first-person pronoun in language and thinking about yourself as such, this kind of thing. Um, and I was interested in reversing the uh, order of inquiry and looking at the more basic forms of self-representation first. Um, so, you know, as I said, the basic forms like bodily spatial self-consciousness, they seem fairly pervasive. But I've also argued that they are not, uh, they are not necessarily ubiquitous. And you can find evidence for states of consciousness in which these are also missing. And this evidence um, has some implications for the whole question that I mentioned early on about whether uh, one can be conscious without being self-conscious at all in any way uh, at the same time. And so there are various um, data points here from psychopathologies, uh, uh, and uh, experimental conditions, but one of the sources of evidence that I've investigated more closely because it had been understudied in philosophy and, and generally in science too uh, was evidence from drug-induced states, um, um, <clears throat> specifically states induced by biopsychoactive compounds that seems to have very drastic uh, dramatic effects on self-representation and the capacity to represent oneself as such, uh, which are transient, so these effects are not permanent. But in the intoxicated state, uh, under the influence of these psychoactive compounds, there is a wealth of converging evidence that um, individuals might undergo experiences in which they lack the capacity to represent themselves, not only cognitively, not only thinking about themselves as such, but uh, also, more generally, they undergo states in which they no longer have a sense of self even from a spatial and bodily perspective. So bodily sensations can um, disappear altogether. There are states in which people are no longer aware of their bodies at all, or they can be uh, kind of blend in with uh, um, perception of the world where people still experience bodily sensations, but they no longer feel connected to themselves in any way. They just feel like sensations like any other on the same, on, on par with uh you know, uh, visual sensations and auditory sensations, and they no longer have this privileged connection to the self. Um, and same thing for spatial self-representation. There are states in which people say that, you know, there is no longer, visual experience is no longer structured by an egocentric frame of reference. There is no longer this privileged standpoint on the world. Everything kind of blends it into this very confusing uh, maelstrom of sensations. Um that uh, no longer involves having a specific standpoint, which is where I stand with respect to the external world. And of course, it's very hard to wrap one's head around, you know, what, what that may even feel like uh, when you study this. But I think that's why it's, it's especially important to look at these very altered states of consciousness, because, um, you know, I like this phrase by the philosopher Daniel Dennett, who says that uh, we ought to be careful when thinking about the mind and philosophy of minds, uh, not to confuse um, failures of imagination for insights into necessity. So just because we, we we can't imagine what that would be like to be in these very altered states doesn't mean that uh, whatever it is like to be in these states is impossible and that, uh, you know, we should think that self-consciousness 
at least in these basic forms of bodily and spatial self-consciousness, is always there whenever we're conscious. Um, so that's a bit of a long-winded answer, but that, that's part of the, 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 you know, some of the questions I've been interested in. I have also looked at this from more theoretical standpoints, arguing against the uh, more a priori arguments for the constitutive uh, involvement of self-consciousness in consciousness. Um, but uh, yeah, I'll, I'll stop here. This is very interesting to me for multiple reasons, but perhaps the most relevant here is this series of questions I kind of gestured at earlier when it comes to the pronouncements. We've seen some of them feeling overconfident about we have these large language model systems that output reasonably human-sounding text. What does that say about their sentience? What does that say about their consciousness? Famously, Blake Lemoine kind of left Google after or, or was kicked out of Google after saying that their Lambda chatbot system was sentient. We had, I think, Ilya Sutskever kind of, you know, prod at everybody saying it might be that today's neural networks are slightly conscious. And I found that some folks were able to bring in some more nuance to that debate. So Thomas Dieterich, I think, wrote a thread in response to the whole sentience thing where he described like multiple different levels at which sentience could occur, which was a very important and clarifying dimension to that. And so what really interests me about your work on consciousness and its relationship to self-consciousness here is I do think that ordinarily there is a lot of this failure of imagination to think about a kind of consciousness that might not necessarily involve that awareness of self. And so when we start thinking about language models or potential future systems, and we want to assess, okay, well, might there be something it is to be like that system? It does seem plausible that whatever possible phenomenological experience that system could have, if it does have any at all, is probably going to be wildly different from anything I could imagine in the classic, what is it like to be a bat sense? And so I'm curious if, to what extent you kind of think about this intersection between consciousness where self-consciousness is not necessarily a constitutive component, and then how that might bear on some of these questions. Yeah, so I, on the consciousness question, uh, my stance on this is perhaps a little uh, disappointing, but I think that the um, I think that the question whether current language models have conscious experiences at all of any kind, uh, and I would include claims like uh, you know uh, Sutskever's claim that perhaps language models are slightly conscious, whatever that means, and I think there are you know. There are reasons to doubt that um, consciousness comes in degrees in the sense that um, people often um, assume uh, that that should be the case. There's some relevant literature and philosophy there. But um, leaving aside the whole degrees, degrees question, um, do language models have any conscious experience at all? I think that question is uh, sadly underdetermined by... Uh, available empirical evidence in light of current scientific theories of consciousness, which are, you know, uh, to, to, put it, to put it in a slightly pessimistic uh, um, way, are um, still in their infancy, uh, still very much uh, 
underdeveloped um, and uh, as long as they are underdeveloped or incomplete, uh, the hopes of making a lot of substantial progress on assessing the uh, existence of conscious experience in, in the systems is is pretty grim. I think uh, that's the, the first part of my answer. I have kind of two-tiered stance on this. Uh, the second tier would be Given that, given that we cannot establish with any certainty whether these systems have a conscious experience at all, um, we can still make a very informed guess about what is plausible or implausible and to a degree. And uh, there I side with people who say it is wildly implausible that current systems have conscious experience at all. And the reason for that is that if you look at current candidate scientific theories of consciousness, there are a few that are taken seriously by researchers in in, in uh, cognitive science and philosophy, they do uh, uh, generally agree on some features that, at least in biological organisms, like humans and non-human animals that are plausibly uh, deemed conscious or have plausibly, can be plausibly described the capacity for conscious experience, there are some some features that seem to be uh, associated with, 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 with consciousness. Um, and many of these features seem to be lacking in current large language models, for example, if you look at the architecture and the way they work. So an example would be uh, recurrent processing. Uh, the brains of mammals, especially the human brain and other, other mammalian brains, um, have a lot of recurrent connections, a lot of, of uh, not just feedforward, but feedback connections, and recurrent processing seems to play a fairly important role in um, the uh, uh, the shift from non-conscious to conscious representation, uh, the ability to have conscious experiences or to perceive things consciously as opposed to non-consciously. Um, and if that's the case, well, that's interesting because current language models are just fit-forward architectures. They don't have these kind of recurrent connections. Um, thinking of transformers here. And to that extent, uh, they seem to perhaps be missing one of the key features of associated with consciousness in, in, in biological organisms. Um, of course, it's, it is not impossible that uh, consciousness might be realized in a different way in the systems. Uh, if you think that uh, consciousness can be realized by different kinds of structures um, and that a feature such as this one is not a necessary condition um, for the occurrence of conscious experience. Nonetheless, I think it's, uh, it's, it's one of several very suggestive um, data points that uh, uh, kind of strengthen the claim that that is, is very implausible that current language models have anything like conscious experience. Um, the other thing I wanted to mention is that when it comes to the question of how consciousness relates to self-consciousness or self-representation in artificial systems, um, there is um, a kind of uh, a double dissociation there where you, you, you can have a system that has the capacity for self-representation without that system being conscious at all because, non, because self-representation can be non-conscious, right? Um, you know, if you, are, if you take a, a very liberal perspective, very deflationary perspective, you might even say that a self-driving car that needs to track its own location in space 
with respect to its environment, implements a very basic form of non-conscious self-representation. Uh, it's very basic, uh, but nonetheless, there is this tracking of one's location in space. And and if you, you know, if you have a very liberal view of self-representation, you might you might say, well, that's that's a very basic form of self-representation, and it doesn't doesn't require consciousness. So that, that's the the first association. And in the other direction, you can have a system that has conscious experiences without representing itself in any way, as I've argued in my work with with humans. Um, so I'm always careful when discussing these issues because often people, especially people who don't have um, a lot of exposure to the philosophical discussions, tend to assume, tend to kind of equate consciousness and self-consciousness or equate, you know, the capacity for self-representation with the capacity for consciousness or vice versa. And I think that's a, that's a leap that we ought not to make um, because of these double dissociations. So the question whether current systems have anything like a form of self-representation, I think is is very interesting. Um, in the case of self-driving cars, this is kind of built in, hand-engineered, as it were, by uh, the engineers making the system because you, you build in this capacity for um, distinguishing between the location of landmarks in the environment from the LiDAR uh, data and from the camera data, for example, um, from the location of, of the vehicle itself. Um, in language models, you don't have any kind of built-in capacity for self-representation. And so you might, it's interesting to, to discuss whether there is this kind of emergent capacity for self-representation that would emerge from training. I don't see any strong evidence that this is the case uh, so far. Uh, I know people concerned about AI safety are concerned about that and thinking, well, you know, perhaps there is there will be at some point this kind of emergent capacity for the systems to represent themselves, um, regardless of whether they're conscious or not, uh, just represent themselves and their own processing and their own, uh, um, perhaps develop something like metacognition, being able to reflect about their own thinking process. Um, but I don't see any strong evidence that uh, this is the case at this point. I think I broadly agree with you on all of those prongs. The very important one that many of these questions are underdetermined and are probably going to remain underdetermined because we just don't have the scientific tools to properly assess them. And also on the wildly implausible front, that being said, it is, and I guess an important rung of this is the need to really be a bit more granular in our discussions of this than consciousness or not conscious or having consciousness or not having consciousness, or when it comes to self-representation, because certainly, and this speaks to, I think, some human biases and the ways that we engage with things, many of these chatbot-like systems certainly present as maybe having some kind of self-concept. At least if you ask it questions about itself, it would answer as though maybe it has some kind of coherent self. And of course, maybe if you question it for long enough, you know, you'll kind of end up in contradictions and it's like, okay, this is not exactly what I thought, but at least in limited enough interactions, it feels, it can feel, you can really feel that sense that this thing kind of presents as having some, some internal coherency, which is very odd, I imagine, for many, many people who haven't thought about these questions as carefully as you have. Yeah, that's a good point. And I think um, uh, the, 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 the fact that language models use the first-person pronoun, for example, by default, 
is probably responsible for a lot of the anthropomorphic attitudes people uh, have towards these models. Because uh, you have here a system that uses the first-person pronoun and says, as a language model, I cannot do blah, blah, blah. Or, um, and um, this behavior is is um, not unique, but someone's, in, in its consistency, is somewhat specific to models that have been fine-tuned, fine-tuned with uh, reinforcement learning from human feedback. Uh, so just in case uh, the listeners aren't familiar with, with this technique, uh, reinforcement learning from human feedback or RLHF is uh, a method that is used um, to refine the behavior of large language models after they have been pre-trained on a lot of text data. The pre-training objective is next word prediction to simplify things a bit. Uh, namely, uh, the model is going to sample sequences of text from a very large corpus, which is a subset of the whole internet. And these sequences of text, generally for current models, span a few span a few thousand words. And for each sequence of text, for each window of text that is sampled, they are uh, tasked with predicting the word that follows. And they start by being uh, really bad at this task, no better than chance and gradually get better because you can compare the prediction that the model makes to the ground truth, what is the actual word that follows that text sequence, and then calculate a measure of the error, how wrong the model is in its prediction, and propagate uh, uh, this uh, quantity back into um, the model by adjusting the knobs of the weights in the model to gradually make the model a little bit better at each step at predicting the next word for any given sequence. And you would do that over and over again, millions of times, and over time the model gets better, and then it is pre-trained. So then you have this model that is pre-trained that can output plausible-sounding texts. But now you want to make the behavior of the model a little more reliable and consistent, especially you want it to give answers that, as much as possible, um, abide by what uh, researchers called the three H's, namely honesty, harmlessness, and helpfulness. So you want the answers of the model to be helpful, to be harmless as much as possible, and to be uh, honest, meaning not making things up when you ask factual questions, uh, telling the truth. And to do that, you use this technique, RLHF, where you have the model uh, given certain prompts that are selected to be prompts that could be problematic because it could lead the model to give answers that are not helpful, not, harmful, not harmless, and, and not honest. So you give these prompts and you ask the model, for example, to generate several outputs for these prompts. And then you ask human raters, crowd workers, to, uh, there are various ways to do this, but one of the most popular ways to rank the outputs from best to worst. Um, say you ask the model to, pro- to produce four outputs for a given prompt, and you ask the the raters to um, the human raters to to rank these, and then you can train a reward model um, on this feedback on this human feedback. And doing that, uh, you can then use this reward model uh, with reinforcement learning to fine tune the original pre-trained model to um, systematically correct its behavior such that at the end of the day, um, when it's been fine tuned, its outputs will reflect human preferences as to uh, the generation of answers that are helpful, harmless, and honest. The reason why I mentioned this, and I'm sure we'll come back into later in the discussion, but I mention this now because uh, the tendency for models to use the first-person pronoun in a way that is somewhat systematic and reliable is 
greatly bolstered by this RLHA fine-tuning. Because uh, when given certain prompts, such as, you know, explain how to hotwire a car, which is uh, a prompt that you don't want the model to answer because it could be harmful, um, RLHA fine-tuning will lead the model, steer the behavior of the model towards giving a kind of uh, boilerplate answer uh, that is acceptable, such as, as a language model, I cannot tell you how to hotwire a car because that would be harmful and I am programmed not to be harmful. And so when you, when you kind of confront it with that output as a user and you're not familiar with, with the, the kind of nuts and bolts of, of training of LLMs, it's easy to, to jump to conclusions and say, oh, okay, this is a, a system that has a kind of self-concept and has certain beliefs about what is harmful or not and certain desires and preferences and has all of this rich um, psychological tapestry that we associate with the use of the first-person pronoun in humans. And uh, that is that is misleading, I think. Um, that is not to say that I am reluctant to ascribe any kind of psychological capacity to language models. Actually, I, I again, try to avoid this kind of false dichotomy between the stochastic parts view on the one hand that these models um, display none of the trappings of, of intelligence or on the other hand, the kind of hyped up view pushed by perhaps some people uh, in AI research, some venture capitalists that these models are harbingers of superhuman intelligence and basically scaling them up will lead to human-like intelligence. There's a rich middle ground. And um, that said, I think jumping to conclusion about the use of somewhat consistent use of the first person pronoun to ascribing uh, the capacity for self-representation in the system is somewhat problematic. Um, so again, uh, here we're kind of bumping into this question of which which share of the model's behavior is akin to a kind of mimicry of human behavior that has been reinforced through things like RLHF fine-tuning and which part is more than mimicry is actually emulation of human-like psychological traits. Uh, the capacity to use the self-concept in this way, or sorry, the first-person pronoun in this way, I think is more on the mimicry side of thing because uh, if you probe further, you can actually see that there is no consistent um, set of uh, anything like, like sets of beliefs about the self in these systems. Uh, if you engage them in creative fiction, they will happily take on various different personas um, that don't display any kind of consistency across prompts and across outputs. Um, so, yeah, I, I think we ought to be careful, and I, I do see why we are people are very taken by these this use of the first person pronoun because this is the first time in human history uh, where we've encountered systems other than human beings themselves that are able to speak fluently and more moreover speak fluently using the first person pronoun in a way that seemingly seems to you know, self-ascribe beliefs, desires, preferences, and so on in this somewhat consistent manner. And so that is very compelling. It, it gives you this very strong illusion that you're talking to a system that is able to represent itself. Indeed. Another topic that I think calls for the kind of care that we're thinking about here and that I'd love to spend quite a bit of time on, I think, is some of the questions you've begun investigating recently regarding grounding and compositionality. And I, I feel there are many 
kinds of questions and concepts to begin with here as we kind of work our way towards the vector grounding problem preprint that you recently published published with Dimitri Molo. And so maybe just to get us started with a few concepts we can kind of introduce to get a grip on things a little bit better. You've described the way that large language models are trained and they form vector representations of tokens, of words. And so in maybe the stochastic parrots paradigm, or not necessarily that paradigm, but in related thoughts, there is, when we're thinking about, do these systems, do those words, do those vector representations mean anything to them? One might think, well, these vectors, a word is defined by the company it keeps. So my representation of a word really is only a definition that's based off of a bunch of other words that have no inherent meaning of their own. And so I think that kind of speaks to some different types of semantic competence that you've distinguished between. But I guess I'd love for you to introduce sort of how you begin to think about some of these questions of what grounding is and LLMs, and then some of the concepts that kind of come into play when you begin thinking about that question. Uh, yes, sure. So there is a, um, a long tradition in, in philosophy and cognitive science of asking, you know, even, even before artificial intelligence came around, how is it that we humans at least seem to have words um, uh, or, or, uh, use words using lexical concepts, representations of, of uh, linguistic representations corresponding to these words, such that we can refer to things out there in the world that uh, these words are uh, associated with. So when I use the word dog, I'm, I'm, refer I'm referring to, uh, to dogs out there in the world. Uh, how is that connection secured? Um, and when people started experimenting with computer systems that could make use of linguistic items of language um, early on in the development of artificial intelligence, specifically, for example, with the early symbolic systems in the, in the 60s, um, like CHRDLU, uh, ELISA, and others that could manipulate language and could uh, seemingly make reference to objects in a virtual world, for example, in the case of CHRDLU, which is a system developed by Terry Winograd. Um, this question emerges specifically with respect to the systems. Um, in the case of these systems, can we say that their use of language, their use of words, is connected in the right way to whatever these words refer to? We humans have seemingly the capacity to secure that kind of connection. Uh, but these systems don't acquire language in the way humans do. They don't even um, kind of evolve in, in the real world uh, in the way humans do. Um, they are trapped in this text-only world or at best in this uh, virtual world of virtual objects like CHRDLU. Um, and so there is a question as to whether the meaning of the words they use is only determined extrinsically by uh, human interpreters. Uh, for example, the human programmers who are 
defining uh, the semantics of the system in the case of these old school symbolic systems by saying the words triangle for CHRDLU uh, refers to virtual triangles in this blocks world. So CHRDLU is a system created by Terry Winograd, as I mentioned, where uh, you have you have um, um, a component of the system that can parse language, where you can you can give it natural language instructions in English, for example, and in response to these instructions, it can manipulate geometric shapes or blocks in in, in a virtual world called the blocks world. Um, so you can say pick up the red pyramid and put it on top of the blue rectangle or something like that, and it can do that. Um, and so its use of the of of, of words like pyramid. Um, the way in which the meaning of these words is secured and the way in which the reference of these words to the virtual pyramids of the blocks world is secured is extrinsic. It is um, enabled by this handcrafted um, semantic interpretation that is given by the human programmers that say the word pyramid is connected to the object's pyramid in the blocks world. Um, so the question that emerges that has come to me as the grounding problem is how can we have an artificial system where that, that uses natural language, that uses words like English words, where um, the reference of the word it uses is secured, not through this kind of extrinsic interpretation uh, given by the programmers, but, but intrinsically, such that these the representations of words that the system makes use of are intrinsically meaningful. They intrinsically refer to um, whatever the words refer to out there in the world. So how do we secure this connection between words and the world? Um, or in other words, how do we ground the meaning of words that the system uses into the reference of these words? Um, and so that's the classical grounding problem. It's an old problem. There are various versions of it that uh, were that kind of came up in philosophy and linguistics and cognitive science over the years. Um, there's an early example from the work of Barbara Party, for example. But there is one canonical paper from 1990 by Stephen Harnett called uh, the symbol grounding problem. That really um, is one of the canonical um, locus classicus of this discussion where, you know, Stephen Harnett framed this problem with respect to these classical symbolic systems. What's interesting is that in recent years, there is a resurgence of this kind of discussion uh, because of the impressive development of large language models that seem to be able to use words fluently. And so people in computer science and computational linguistics have been reviving this old grounding problem, but generally not making reference to these older discussions. Um, and so what, one of the things we do in this preprint that I wrote with Dimitri Molo is that connecting this discussion back to its or its roots in philosophy and cognitive science, because some, sometimes people lose sight of how this debate initially emerged. And I think we can learn from these past discussions. Um, but people have been start, have started to talk about the grounding problem with respect to language models. Um, and although the details are a bit different because language models do not make use of discrete symbols like old school uh, AI systems, but instead uh, they make use of vector representations. So they represent words as vectors in a continuous vector space. Um, 
if you abstract away from this difference, the, the problem remains basically the same. How can language models um, acquire representations of uh, the meaning of words that is uh, a representation of words that is intrinsically meaningful, that is connected to the reference of the world, um, and uh, not just uh, extrinsically meaningful uh, in the sense that it would just have meaning for a human interpreter. So yeah, so we wrote this this preprint with Dimitri um, to investigate that question, and um, perhaps I can stop here and and I can tell you later about the positive view that we're putting forward. But uh, that's the setup. Yes. So you mentioned the original 1990 symbol grounding paper by Harnad, and it strikes me in his conceptualization, and you pointed at this as well, how related it is to this particular sort of grounding, right? The sensory grounding that you were speaking of, because that is one way for me to know the world. When I think of the concept or my representation of an apple, that is also tied to the experience I can have of like grasping an apple, of eating an apple. And for Harnad, I guess a lot of this purpose kind of ties very closely with his conception of what a Turing test should be. My understanding is he kind of often articulates this idea of like a lifelong robotic Turing test where you have this system that is kind of in the world and we're not playing this mini game of, you know, convince three judges over text that you're a human for about 10 minutes, but rather be convincing over the course of an entire lifetime as this kind of ideal point of the type of system that we're interested in here and whether that system achieves grounding. So maybe taking that as a starting point, I'd love for you to start working your way towards you introduce a few different types of grounding in this paper and kind of work out which one is most relevant for large language models. And we are here in, of course, a paradigm that is naturally a little bit more restricted than what I think Harnad envisioned because we're not dealing with robots here. We are dealing with these text-based systems. But yeah, I guess I'd love for you to introduce kind of coming off of where he started, how you're thinking about this question. Yeah, so in that paper with uh, with Dimitri, we we kind of noticed that the discussion on grounding in recent years at least, but even going back to older discussions, seems to conflate different notions under this heading of grounding. Um, and so we think it might be helpful for future discussions to neatly disentangle these different notions. So we find five different notions of grounding that um, are occasionally conflated because people just uh, refer to this as grounding without making this distinction. And that there is a risk of verbal dispute there because people might be talking past each other. Um, and so, you know, that... that uh, the, I think this is this this can be the benefit of of a philosophical investigation and the kind of contribution philosophers make to this kind of discussion is to try to make some conceptual distinctions, um, even though you know that sometimes give us philosophers a bad rep because people would say you know well we're splitting hairs and so on. But uh, we do think this is helpful. So here we we distinguish between five different notions of grounding. The first one is the most canonical important one, and we end up saying that this is the key notion that really the grounding problem hinges on. This is what we call referential grounding. And this is the questions of how representations are of, you know, lexical representations, representations of, of words or linguistic items are connected to things out there in the world. How 
you know how are the grounding in in this external reference that enables them to to represent worldly entities and properties. That's referential grounding. When I use the word dog, how does that refer to dogs out there in the world? And there's a second notion that we call sensory motor grounding. And that's about the connection between internal representations themselves, the representation, the connection between representations between themselves and other representations in the world. So for example, the connection between lexical concepts, like my concept of the word dog, and sensory motor representations within the cognitive system. So my concept of the word dog is connected in an appropriate way to say um, visual, my visual concept of a dog, you know, by my um, my knowledge about what a dog looks like. And um, a lot of people, when they talk about the grounding problem, seems to be talking about something like that. So for example, when people talk about multimodal, um, like um, vision language models, like DALI2, for example, or stable diffusion, um, some people say, well, these models overcome the grounding problem because they are trained not just on text, but on text and images. Also, GPT-4 would be in that, in that category. At least one version of GPT-4 can take in images as input. Um, so they would say these systems overcome the grounding problem because they text not just text, but text and images as input, and they can connect visual and, and linguistic representations up together. Um, but one of the points we make um, is that we shouldn't conflate sensory motor grounding with refer referential grounding. So um, connecting linguistic and visual representations, for example, um, doesn't really get you out of what Harnot called the merry-go-round of representations uh, or, or the carousel of representations where uh, you... Uh, are going from representation to representation, but you're never escaping that connection, inter internal connection between representations to actually secure a, con a connection to the external world, right? So that's that's something much our grounding. Uh, and then very quickly, these are a little um, uh, less important for our argument, but the other notions of grounding that are discussed and conflated. So there is what we call relational grounding, which focuses on relationships between lexical, lexical concepts themselves or intralinguistic relationships, um, where a word's meaning is partly determined by its relations to other words in the language. So for example, a lexical concept of dog is connected to a lexical concept of a pet, a lexical concept of furry. Um, and uh, that's an important connection that seems to be uh, relevant to at least part of the meaning we ascribe to words. Uh, but arguably, it's not. It's not the totality. The, you know, the, the, the totality of word meaning is not uh, uh, entirely secured by this kind of intern in, intralinguistic connections. Um, then there is what we call communicative grounding, which is about establishing common ground between speakers in conversations. So people talk about grounding because there's this idea of common ground. Uh, so this is to ensure mutual understanding and to coordinate uh, uh, identical reference when we use words. So when I use the word dog and we use word dog, we want to make sure that we are, we're, we're referencing the same thing. And so in conversation, there is this kind of dynamical process of um, checking that the other person understands the words we use in the way we mean them. And uh, some people call this grounding. Uh, we call this communicative grounding to distinguish it from the other notion. And finally, there is this uh, more... Uh, 
secondary notion that uh, is sometimes used in computer science, which is about the relationship between a linguistic expression and information that is stored in the, in the knowledge base. So that's the case in, for example, old school symbolic expert systems. You might have a use of the word dog that is connected to a database of dog facts, facts about dogs. But, you know, people also talk about this kind of grounding uh, in the context of large language models because there are these papers that compare large language models to knowledge bases where um, certain words are connected to bodies of information that have been memorized by the system, uh, such as facts in a certain domain. So we call this epistemic grounding. So we have these five notions, relational, sorry, referential grounding, the most important one, sensory motor grounding, relational grounding, communicative grounding, and epistemic grounding. Uh, and the point we're making is that we, first of all, we need to be clear about which one of these notions we're talking about. And secondly, um, the vector, what we call the vector grounding problem, so the, the, the grounding problem applied to language models that use vector-based representations, the grounding problem is concerned with the first notion, the notion of referential grounding. How do we connect linguistic representations, representations of linguistic items to their reference in the world? Um, so, so that's how we set up that uh, discussion. Speaking to the broader question you began with in gesturing at referential grounding, the idea of lexical representations and their connection to things in the world, I'd love to dig a little bit further into your thoughts on this question specifically and how that relates to the task of language modeling and what these models do. I think that where a lot of this begins, we have the famous distributional hypothesis that we kind of gestured at earlier that words are defined by the company they keep. I've heard people who are very bullish on language models quote stuff in later Wittgenstein as kind of a justification for some of their views on why these systems are so powerful. And I guess a closely related concept in Wittgenstein this kind of brings up for me is the whole family resemblance idea. And I should probably flag that this is maybe a little bit more about like concepts than individual words or lexical tokens, but just that even when it comes to concepts, there's this contextuality to them. So something that is chair-like in a particular situation is not going to be chair-like in another situation. And so there's this aspect of like my grip on the world that in a particular moment, I can intuit that something maybe qualifies as a chair in that particular situation. And that feels like something that when I start to think about just gleaming things about the world from just a sequence of text itself feels a little bit harder to compress into it. But I'm, I'm a little bit curious how you think about some of these questions as well. Yeah. Um, so let me start with a distributional hypothesis. Um, just, you know, to, to, to make it a little bit more explicit what this is and how this came about and how that relates to current discussions. Yeah. So this is a, a, an idea that came from uh, structural linguistics uh, in the 1950s through the works of people like Zilig Harris and J.R. Firth, uh, who, were, who were linguists uh, in this structural tradition. And um, uh, the structuralist view of language posits that um, 
linguistic units, linguistic items, acquire meaning through the relationships with other units in the system. And Zelig Harris, this linguist uh, in the 50s, suggested that specifically that, that the meaning of a word could be inferred by examining its distributional properties, meaning the context in which the word occurs. So you can look at the at a corpus of text and look at the context in which the words occur, meaning uh, what are the neighbors, what are the words that are surrounding this word, and this will give you some information about what the word means. Uh, and this is somewhat intuitive. Uh, think about the word apple and pear. Apple and pear are two words that would both occur near the same other words very often. It will occur near the word pie, for example, because apples and pears are both are two things that can be baked in pies. They will occur near the word fruit, because these are both fruits. They will occur near the word eat, because this can be eaten, and so on and so forth. Um, so as you alluded to, uh, J.R. Firth, a little, you know, a few years after Harris uh, published about this kind of hypothesis, summarized it with, with this slogan, you shall know a word by the company it keeps, um, which uh, is a nice way to think about this idea that uh, the meaning of words is determined by their relationships to other words uh, and by the distributional properties of words in language, how the words distribute in language. Um, and Firth also acknowledged explicitly the influence of Wittgenstein uh, which is interesting. So specifically the later Wittgenstein, as you, as you alluded to. So um, the work of Wittgenstein is, is classically divided into two periods. Um, there is this, um, this, this book that Wittgenstein uh, wrote in the later part of his life called The Philosophical Investigations, um, in which he puts forward this conception of, of meaning as use uh, to highlight the importance of context in understanding linguistic meaning. Uh, and so Wittgenstein famously says that the meaning of a word is in its use, uh, and that influenced people like J.R. Firth and these structural linguists. Um, so um, just as an aside, it's interesting because, you know, the work of Wittgenstein is, is famously difficult to interpret. There are, very, there are, there are many people who uh, have been influenced by Wittgenstein, but in different ways and disagree about how to interpret his work, both the early Wittgenstein and the late Wittgenstein. And the late Wittgenstein's legacy, specifically in natural language processing and computational linguistics, is very fascinating because today, when you look at the discourse on language models, you will find people on both extremes of the spectrum um, appeal to Wittgenstein uh, to draw opposite conclusions. So on the one hand, you would have uh, people um, like uh, Felix Hill and Steve Tintadossi in their paper on, on uh, meaning without reference uh, that kind of pushes this distributional semantics line that uh, the meaning of a word is, it, is, it, is in its context of use, uh, they appeal to Wittgenstein to make that point. And so they appeal to Wittgenstein, to the late Wittgenstein, to say language models can have meaningful representations of words or they can understand meaning or, 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 or represent meaning because they can very powerfully leverage distributional uh, distributional properties of words in a large corpus. That's what they do when they play this next word prediction game. Uh, they end up modeling very precisely uh, the distributional statistics of, of word use. And on the other hand of a, on the other on the other end of a spectrum, you have people like um, 
uh, Emily Bender and Alex Kohler, they had this very influential paper called uh, um, Climbing Towards NLU, Natural Language Understanding, in which they claimed that um, there is this absolute divide between the form of language and and the meaning of language. Well, the form of language is kind of its, its syntax and the, the, the symbols that are manipulated, uh, like words, uh, uh, and put together in, in expressions. Uh, and they say that language models are very good at uh, uh, learning about the form of language, uh, learning about um, how the symbols that are words or tokens come together in syntactic constructions. But they are nothing at all about the meaning of language, because there is, in their view, this absolute divide between form and meaning. And they also appeal to Wittgenstein, to the late Wittgenstein, to say, well, if if uh, if the meaning of a word is is at this part determined by its use, truly making use of words, using language, being being a language user, involves uh, communicating with other people and having communicative intentions and uh, representing other people's communicative intentions. So that's not just manipulating tokens and putting them together in well-formed synthetic expressions, but that's about meaning things when you use tokens, having an intent to communicate certain things. And they say that's a key feature of Wittgenstein's view that is missing from language models because they don't have anything like an intention to communicate anything. They just play this next word prediction game that is purely formal and they don't have this capacity for communicative intentions. So it's just interesting that uh, Wittgenstein, that its legacy is kind of, of uh, um, <clears throat> um, multiple and, and uh, um, you know, heading towards very different directions. Uh, but just to come back to the distribution hypothesis, so the way we get from there to language models is that as we search on, on this hypothesis progressed, from this early work in structural linguistics in the 50s, um, researchers begin to explore the possibility of representing word meanings as vectors in a multi-dimensional space, which is, is the key idea behind language models. And there's actually early work in that area that came from uh, psychology and not from linguistics, uh, with the work of people like Charles Osgood, um, who examined the meaning of words along various dimensions, such as valence or potency, by collecting judgments from human raters. And so that work introduced the idea of representing meaning in a multidimensional vector space, uh, relying on explicit participant rating about the connection, the, 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 sorry, the connotations of uh, words along different scales. Uh, so this was not at the time relying on analyzing the distributional properties uh, of a linguistic corpus. But then follow-up follow work uh, kind of connected these two things. So the distributional hypothesis, the idea that words, or the meaning of words is secured by the distributional properties of words on the one hand, and on the other hand, the idea that you can, you can represent word meaning as uh, a vector in a high-dimensional vector space. And these two things together gave rise to eventually to um, the development of word, word embedding models that we mentioned earlier, like Word2Vec uh, in the uh, 2010s, and then uh, more recently to the large language models we have today. Um, and so because large language models learn to represent words by playing this next word prediction game where they have an input sequence 
or context window and they try to predict which is the word that follows and then they adjust the vector representation for words accordingly they end up having these representations of words as vectors in the high dimensional vector space that um, very finely captures distributional properties of words such that words that tend to occur together will have vectors in the system that are close together in the vector space. So that's kind of the basic uh, first order co-occurrence statistics, uh, which words tend to co-occur. But it goes beyond that. You also have, uh, it also captures second order um, co-occurrence statistics, um, such as which words tend to co-occur with the same other words. So again, apple and pear, even if they don't co-occur together very often, I mean, it's probably a bad example because there are plenty of sentences that use apples and apple, the word apple and the word pear together. But assuming they don't occur together, they will still co-occur with the same other words like pie or eat or fruit. So that is also captured. And um, there are many other kinds of, of distributional statistical relationships in words that are captured in this way. And... Uh, that ends up um, under undergirding the capacity of these models to represent fine-grained uh, syntactic relationship between words, but also more semantic relationships about the meaning of words. Uh, for example, you can look at, even in uh, older word embedding models, you can look at um, the, the vector for queen and the vector for uh, um man and the vector for woman and you can do arithmetics with the vectors you can say what is uh you know uh queen plus woman um sorry queen plus man minus woman and uh the resulting vector will be closest to the vector for king so you, you have this uh this ability to capture analogical relationships like this and and many more fine-grid relationships so this is what led people to think that you are capturing some really important part of word meaning with that kind of approach, uh, you know, building on this distributional hypothesis. Right. So I guess my kind of question for you kind of stemming out of all this is where we tend to land when it comes to your views on the vector grounding problem. So you come to, as you were mentioning earlier, a positive conclusion in this paper that it is possible to overcome this problem and achieve some notion of referential grounding. And you introduce some theories of representational content in service of coming to that conclusion. Could you describe that in a little more detail? Yeah, so um, the idea is that um, this kind of distributional relationship between words, that does not really solve the grounding problem because the grounding problem as we define it and as it has been classically defined pertains to referential grounding and not to what we call relational grounding. Relational grounding would be about connecting word representations together uh, through things like definitions, paraphrase, uh, summaries, and so on. Um, and we say that the problem of the, 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 what the grounding problem is about is about how words connect to the world and the reference in the world. Um, so can and do language models overcome that problem? We say that they do, uh, and we build on philosophical theories of representation to make that point. 
So we say that, you know, according to the leading philosophical theories of representations, um, representational content um, is secured by um, causal informational and historical relations um, uh, between um, the, um, the, the representation of the system and, uh, and whatever these representations are about. Um, <clears throat> so one first thing that we point out is that uh, we, we already alluded to that earlier in the discussion is that um, there are some structured domains in the world whose structure is pretty well reflected by structural properties of language that can be learned by language models. So an example would be um, spatial terms or color terms. Um, spatial terms such as above, below, right to, left of, you know, right of, uh, in front, behind. Um, these, um, the, the kind of distributional properties of these terms tends to correlate with uh, the actual spatial structure of uh, entities in the world. Um, and with color terms, you know, the use of terms like blue, red, yellow, and so on, the distributional properties of these words also tends to correlate with um, the way in which colors are actually organized in a space that is not the physical space, like with spatial terms, but is the color space. Um, so you can represent colors in a three-dimensional space uh, with dimensions corresponding to, to hue, saturation, and brightness, for example. Um, and... Uh, that is a structured space where colors can be represented as vectors uh, in three dimensions. So there is some empirical work that we discussed in the paper, um, work by, for example, Ellie Pavlik and collaborators, that shows that um, you can find a structural correspondence or a homomorphism between the vector representations of color terms and spatial terms, for example, and uh, the actual uh, relationships um, that, you know, uh, uh, corresponding relationships in, in the world between uh, uh, objects or colors in a physical space or in color space. So uh, you have this homomorphism between representations of linguistic items and the structure of the world in certain domains. That's interesting. Um, because that already uh, puts a little bit of pressure on this claim that there is this absolute distinction between form and meaning in language, uh, in the sense that the form of language uh, here, um, referring to these uh, distributional properties of language, um, is not separated or divorced from uh, the meaning of words because there are these correspondence relationships with, with the world and the reference of words in the world. But uh, that's the first step, but we say that that's not sufficient um, because uh, there is a lot of long uh, literature in philosophy showing that uh, this kind of correspondence relation is not sufficient to secure meaning because there is... Um, uh, well-known problem of, of indeterminacy where uh, 
you know, homomorphisms are kind of cheap to find, then you can find uh, homomorphisms uh, uh, between uh, two domains uh, in a number of different ways. Uh, and it's not sufficient to secure a specific content of representations. So one of the things that you need also is um, a kind of um, a historical uh, process that fixes the content of representations um, that can be a, a learning process. In the case of large language models, they are trained, they are artificial neural networks, they learn from data. And so a key part of the story about how they might come to acquire meaningful representations will be um, determined by considerations about how they learn from data. And the classic objection here is that they learn from a next word prediction learning objective. Uh, namely, you know, playing this next word prediction game, trying to predict the next word in a sequence of text. And that's uh, something that seems to at best lead the model to acquire intralinguistic functions where they can't acquire any meaningful representation about the world, but only represent intralinguistic relationships. Uh, it's, a, it's a function, a learning objective that only applies at the level of relationship between words by playing next word prediction from sequences of words. And what we suggest is that um, there are various considerations that could lead you to think that uh, language models can acquire more than just intralinguistic functions in this way through their learning process. And the more compelling case, I think, uh, what is more likely to convince the most people comes from what we talked about earlier, which is RLHF fine-tuning. Um, so modern language models, the ones that uh, GPT-3, uh, for ChatGPT or GPT-4 are based on, um, they are fine-tuned with RLHF, so again, using human feedback. Uh, and this human feedback is feedback about outputs that are harmless, helpful, and honest. And the last component, these are all normative uh, criteria. And the last criteria, criterion of, of honesty in particular um, is not just normative, uh, but epistemically normative, because it's a, it's a criterion that's about the accuracy, the factual accuracy of the outputs of the model. And so when these models are getting fine-tuned with RLHF, with reinforcement learning through the reward model that was trained by looking at human preferences, the learning objective is no longer just next word prediction. It is actually getting trained or fine-tuned with this explicit objective, uh, uh, normative objective um, that embeds human preferences about um, truthfulness or accuracy. And we think that actually is sufficient to uh, uh, endure the model with a kind of descriptive normativity that um, um, secures a world-involving function sensitive to uh, certain accuracy conditions about how the world is, that is uh, the missing ingredient to get intrinsically meaningful representations, not just of relationships between words, but about how words connect to the world. So, for example, um, part of our relationship functioning might be uh, giving human feedback about the model's outputs about two, two, two questions about um, the capitals of the world. What's the capital of France? Paris. So human feedback will say that Paris is a better answer than Berlin, for example. And that's feedback about how the world is. 
And uh, that secures certain accuracy conditions and conditions for uh, misrepresentation uh, that is world-involving, not just language-involving. So in a nutshell, that's why we think that RLHF uh, provides the missing ingredients in accordance with theories of representations because it uh, explains how uh, content can be fixed in large language models through not just causal informational relations with this kind of, um, uh, especially through this kind of like um, morphisms between the representations of the model and structured domains in the world, but also through a historical learning process that involves uh, normative world-involving functions and not just interlinguistic functions. This question might get us a little bit into the weeds here, but I did want to ask about this particular bit when you're getting into the question of causal informational relations. Um, You say an additional requirement often mentioned is that the causal informational relation be exploited that is used by system due to its information carrying nature. And you reference some, some other work here. And I guess to me on reading this section, exploit is doing a fair amount of work. And so when I hear exploit, you know, I think that naturally kind of has to do with exploiting towards something for some purpose. There's there's like a teleological aspect to that. And so I guess I'm curious to what extent you would get serious about the teleology involved in this. And I guess what I'm wondering there is maybe the aim itself to which we're exploiting causal informational relations also requires some content. And so in thinking about these theories of representational content, we come to some of the same questions about that aim itself. Right. Yeah. So um, just to to backtrack a little bit, give a little background here. Um, You know, what we reference in the paper and what you alluded to in the background is a certain kind of theory of representational content known as teleosemantics. So it's a it's a it's part of the broader project of naturalizing uh, representational contents that give you a naturalistic account of of, of mental content in philosophy. Um, and teleosemantics is often thought to be a particularly compelling solution to the problem of intentionality or, the, or meaning. That is how mental states uh, in human and non-human systems um, can come to be about things in the world or can come to represent things uh, in the world. And um, um, so it's it just to finish on that kind of uh, background, the term teleosemantics come from uh, teleology, which refers to kind of uh, the goal-directedness of a system or the purpose of a system. Um, and semantics, of course, refers to to meaning or to uh, the representation. Um, so according to teleosemantic uh, theories uh, that have been put forward by people like Ruth Millikan and others in philosophy, the representational content of a mental state is determined by the function that this state has for the organism. And the function here uh, in teleosemantics is understood in a biological or an evolutionary sense, broadly speaking. Um, so the idea is that a mental state represents whatever is its function to represent. And the function uh, of the system is typically understood uh, to be something that has been selected or stabilized uh, um, 
in the course of evolution or in the course of a kind of learning process or histor historical process because it enhanced, uh, for example, in evolutionary terms, it enhanced the fitness of uh, the organism's ancestors. So that brings us to this idea of causal informational relations. So a causal of informational relation exists when a certain type of event or a certain type of, of state of affairs reliably causes another event or another state of affairs. So for example, if um, you have a fire, that's an event, uh, typically causes smoke, which is another event. So fire, uh, the occurrence of a fire causes, causes the occurrence of smoke. And we can say that there is a causal informational relation between fire and smoke uh, in this case, right? Because smoke carries information about the presence of a fire, typically. So when it comes to mental representations, um, teleosemantics suggests that a mental state represents whatever uh, it has been uh, beneficial, at least in evolutionary terms, for that state to carry information about. So it's beneficial for a certain type of mental state to carry information about the presence of, for example, food um, and in a certain organism. And if that's beneficial, then that mental state represents the presence of food. Um, so again, the idea is that you have this historical uh, um, process which is cashed out often in evolutionary terms for the that determines how content is fixed in uh, the system. Um, so what about this idea of exploiting that you 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 um, you, you mentioned? Um, well, the idea of a system exploiting a causal informational relation refers to the way that a system uses these kind of relations, causal informational relations, to its advantage. So, for example, a primitive organism might have a sensory system that responds to certain types of light because it, this carries information about the time of day, which in turn is useful to, say, regulate its sleep-wake cycle. And so here the organism is exploiting the causal informational relation between light and time of day. Um, so... Um, Again, to, to summarize, the, the telosemantics um, and theories in the vicinity of telosemantics account for representational, representational content by appealing to the functions that mental states have for the system. Well, these functions are determined by what has been historically advantageous for the system. Uh, so for an organism, that's kind of what has been evolutionary advantageous in terms of maximizing fitness of the organism's ancestors. And a mental state represents whatever... It is its function to carry information about, and this involves the organism exploiting certain causal informational relations. Now, when it comes to artificial systems, that account needs to be a little bit um, refined or adapted to um, cases that don't involve an evolutionary history. But, but here you can just plug in the learning history of the system uh, as, as a substitute for this evolutionary history. Uh, so in the case of large language models, um, these models don't evolve in the way organisms evolve, uh, but they um, they have they, they they kind of learn or develop from a learning process initially from pre-training with network prediction and then from our relationship fine tuning, um, and this plays a similar role as. Uh, evolution in organisms from a semantics perspective. Um, so it determines, it fixes certain functions um, that uh, um, are 
brought about by the learning objective. So an export prediction or in the case of RLHF, uh, kind of reward maximization. Um, and so this is where um, we can say that the system is exploiting certain causal informational relations uh, because um, it's using uh, these relations to maximize that learning objective uh, that is determined by the learning process. So I don't really think there is a problem here in terms of uh, like a chicken and egg problem or something like that, right? Because um, you can just appeal to the nature of the learning objective. And again, the key point is that the learning objective of RLHF is not just intralinguistic, uh, or it doesn't simply um, rely on the exploitation of intralinguistic functions, but it relies on the exploitation of world-involving functions. Uh, and that can fix the content of uh, the system's representations on a, in a telos and semantic uh, perspective. Um, so yeah, I hope that, that helps. Yeah, I think that I think that makes sense to me. I guess when I was thinking about your teleosemantic perspective, what I kind of found myself wondering that led to this question was um, when, so we're thinking about this like intentional content we might have when it comes to my representation of their being a fire, for instance. And so the telos is something like guiding fire-related behavior, perhaps, which seems fundamentally different from representing the presence of fire. And so I guess it seems like you're kind of grounding that out. Like there, there's some unmoved mover somewhere here, right? That kind of has its intrinsic content that is then providing the demand for content that my representations have, right? And so I guess what I was initially worried about was, okay, if I just assume that like guiding fire related behavior, the kind of telos there, is this unmoved mover that has that intrinsic content that sort of defines the content of my representation of fire? Like, I'm not sure if that's really the right place to locate it. Does does that make a little bit more sense as a concern? So, um, I'm not sure if I've, I, I maybe I've misunderstood the the point. So, if you think of um, fire related behavior, um, this is guided by this um uh you know historically guided by 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 this evolutionary objective of maximizing uh say inclusive genetic fitness for the organism and that provides the the telos that secures um the exploitation of causal informational relations about fire that enables the system to um, or they uh, say about like, um, um, yeah, but perhaps this example is a bit confusing because we're shifting from the fire smoke, uh, uh, common example to, uh, talking about relationships between representation and the world. But, uh, again, if you think of like the system representing maybe light is a better example. So, um, having, um, uh, acquiring representations that, uh, represent that that um associate light with the representation of of the time of day or something like that uh for a specific uh evolutionary advantage that uh, is is uh is governed by this maximization of inclusive genetic fitness so where in that framework um is the first mover problem that 
you're alluding to? So I guess what I'm thinking about, I guess maybe you kind of answered the question in terms of this definition is kind of provided. So there's there's something that's related to like our evolutionary history that's playing here in terms of the definitions we're looking for for content. I think I think that broadly answers my question on this. I'm going to have to think about this in a little bit more detail. That was kind of my first first slice at uh, thinking about this a little bit and I'm not a super well-formed worry just yet. I guess to kind of close out some of the thoughts here. So we've sort of explained you kind of gave us a very interesting history of the distributional hypothesis and and the ways later Wittgenstein has been employed in the service of different theories about language models and what they can or can't know about the world. And so I think when it comes to broadly these questions about grounding, maybe lifting ourselves up a level, we like grounding is is a really interesting question for lots of reasons. And I think that it has a lot of bearing on things that we would like to see in the systems we're developing when it comes to honesty and in our interactions with them. And so I do think there is a question of, in terms of gradations, like grounding feels like something that, again, can kind of exist on a gradient. Like it's not that something is fully grounded or it has no grounding whatsoever. And there is this other paper called Dumb Meaning Machine Learning Artificial Semantics that I think spoke to similar ideas and kind of explored this dumb meaning that LLMs and I guess even multimodal models, although I know you come to a negative conclusion about multimodal models, but this kind of argues that there's something more than syntax going on and I guess less than meaning proper. When it comes to the idea of meaning proper for humans, there does there do seem to be a lot of extra linguistic aspects to the ways that you and I engage with the world, the way we experience things, the way things have meaning to us. And so that does feel like something that one might naturally intuit as a bit beyond the scope of what an LLM can like learn about the world and ways in which it can ground its representations. And I think a lot of that is tied into our phenomenological experience, even extending beyond sensory motor concerns. But while that's interesting, I guess there is that question of how much does it matter pragmatically to get systems to do the kinds of things we want them to do? So I guess I'd love to hear you describe maybe a little bit kind of coming to a close on this grounding problem when it comes to these questions of gradation and developing systems that do the kinds of things we might be interested in as a community right now. What level of grounding, what do you think is important there? And how do you think about some of these questions of like extra linguistic aspects of meaning when it comes to the human experience? Yeah, that's a great question. And I certainly don't mean to suggest that, um, and we don't mean to suggest in the paper either, that um, <clears throat> large language models trained on text only uh, are have representations that are grounded in the same way and to the same extent than the representations uh, are are in, in humans. Um, we just minimally want to claim that the grounding problem can be overcome just in the sense that there can be some degree of referential grounding in language models trained 
context only. Uh, and somewhat counterintuitively, that means that neither multimodality nor embodiment are necessary conditions to achieve some form of referential grounding. Now, that doesn't mean that um, you couldn't have systems that uh, would greatly benefit from multimodal representations and embodiments to achieve a greater degree of referential grounding. Uh, that certainly seems to be a plausible idea. It does mean that there is this uh, surprising double dissociation between referential grounding and the capacity for multimodal representations or embodiments. So you have embodied systems like uh, um, this a system from Google called SayCan that's a language model plugged on uh, a robot that can navigate the world and answer natural language instructions. Um, and you have multimodal systems like uh, DALI2. And neither of these systems, in our view, uh, achieve uh, referential grounding because they don't really have, uh, at least if you take the, the, the claim we make about RLHF, they don't really have, uh, like the, 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 the language model component of SACAN and, and the multi, the vision language models like DALI2, they don't really have anything like uh, any learning process like uh, RLHA fine-tuning that secures the right kind of normative or involving function to acquire referential grounding. Um, so you can have referential grounding from text-only models without multimodality, without embodiment. Uh, and um, vice versa, you can have a multimodal or embodied model without referential grounding. Um, but, so there is a double dissociation, but we do, I mean, I do think that it is possible that, well, certainly if you look at the human case, of course, we are embodied systems. We are systems that uh, rely on rich multimodal sources of information to uh, understand the world and our concepts uh, embody uh, rich multimodal information. My concept of a dog, again, is... Uh, um, um, embodying uh, 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 information about what dogs look like and um, what dogs sound like when they bark and what dogs feel like when I touch them and so on. Um, and that is presumably missing entirely from language models trained on text only. Um, they might learn from descriptions of what a dog looks like, but that will fall short of um, the right kind of, of multimodal information that is associated with concepts in, in rich concepts in the, in the human case. So, um, so yeah, I, I basically, I agree that, uh, while you can secure some degree of referential grounding from text only training with the right kind of learning objective that secures world involving functions, um, you presumably have a lot to gain from endowing the systems with multimodality and then embodying them in the real world, even though um, in order for the systems that are multimodal and embodied to also achieve referential grounding and achieve it to a greater extent, you need them to uh, induce the right kind of world-involving function. And that means that you need them to, for example, in the embodiment case, you need a system to adjust its representation of the meaning of words based on these embodied interactions which is not the case in SACAN, for example, the system I mentioned, where uh, they just used an off-the-shelf pre-trained language model and then 
feed the outputs, of, you know, feed feed it as input the natural language instructions, like fetch me a can of beer, and then the language models is processing that input, outputting some low-level instructions for the robot, and then the robot is executing these low-level instructions uh, to navigate to the kitchen and grab the can of beer and bring it to the user. Um, in that case, there is no updating of the uh, lexical representations of the language model on the basis of embodiments. There is no uh, change. There is no learning process that occurs. The language model is pre-trained and it is, it is frozen, as, as people say in computer science. It is no longer being updated. So embodiment doesn't contribute anything to the to learning, to the historical process that fixes representational content. So what you would need for a more strongly referentially grounded system is a system that, where whose representations are actually uh, further stabilized by a historical learning process involving embodied interactions with the world. That makes sense to me. And I guess one aspect of that grounding as well. Um, I guess I'm thinking a little bit about like Winograd's kind of classical critique of AI here and that it's not just like a one-way sort of stabilizing thing that's happening when we like construct meaning and when cognition is occurring, but rather there's this dynamic interaction with the world we have where our, our brain, our mind helps determine how the world is perceived rather than like grasping this thing that just kind of exists out there for us to to represent in a single direction. So that seems also, I guess, kind of relevant to some of these questions. But for the sake of, I guess, closing out here, um, I realize I've taken up a lot of your time already, but for maybe just a last closing question, I'd love to hear a little bit about, I mean, there are many topics that we didn't really quite get to discuss, but I'm curious just what's what particular wrinkles or, or topics that you're thinking about next. Yeah. Um, so there are a number of, I have a number of ongoing projects um, that continue uh, in the same vein to probe relationships or comparisons between uh, human cognition and, and deep learning models in different domains, such as language understanding, reasoning, planning, perception, and so on. Uh, so one thing I'm very interested in right now is this high-level question of um, how we can investigate uh, this comparison in a way that is uh, both meaningful and fair to both sides of the comparison. So fair to human cognition and fair to deep learning models. And when I mean fair it, here, I means that means that uh, it's actually highly non-trivial to set up experiments or have methodological tools to assess how, um, for example, whether language models have some kind of cognitive capacity that we ascribe to humans uh, in a way that doesn't stack the deck either in favor of the human or in favor of the language model. Uh, in other words, how do we get an apples to apples comparison here? Uh, from a methodological standpoint, it's very difficult uh, because whenever you have a certain evaluation tool like a benchmark, there is always a concern that good performance on the benchmark is not going to measure uh, the relevant underlying competence. So there's this potential gap between performance and competence that is that is relevant here. 
So I've been thinking about this a lot and talking with various cognitive scientists and uh, computer scientists about how they think about this. Uh, and this is related to this bigger project where uh, I've started thinking about, uh, and I have some joint work with Charles Radcliffe about that, um, again, thinking about the, the extreme polarization of current discourse and language models where a lot of people have this kind of all or nothing approach where either these models must have human-like intelligence or they must not be intelligent at all. And we think that this is uh, problematic because, first of all, only appealing to these very sweeping notions like intelligence or understanding or whether something has a mind or not uh, doesn't really enable you to make some more fine-grained distinctions between different specific cognitive capacities. But also this all-or-nothing thinking is in inadequate because... Um, there is this, this again, this, this vast multidimensional spectrum uh, on which you could, where you could locate current systems. Uh, some way in between uh, the lack of a cognitive capacity altogether and the uh, possession of that capacity at human level. And this is something that is familiar, again, to people working in comparative psychology, for example, in animal cognition where these people are used to try to resist both anthropomorphism, but also something like a chauvinistic form of anthropocentrism, where you look at whatever is the human manifestation of a given cognitive trait as the gold standard, and whatever system doesn't meet that standard, you, th you say must be lacking that trait altogether. For example, epistemic memory or metacognition uh, would be examples that are discussed in the, in the animal case. So we, we, we kind of take inspiration from these mythological debates in comparative psychology and developmental psychology to say, look, we need to, re to reject this all-or-nothing thinking and we need to, to adopt a more divide-and-conquer approach. We look at different individual cognitive uh, traits or capacities on a case-by-case -case basis in these systems. And we look carefully at empirical evidence with a, a more open-minded empiricist attitude and we try to assess the degree to which the systems might be said to possess something analogous to these capacities, uh, even if it's not to the same degree as humans or with the same degree of sophistication. Um, so that's one thing I'm very interested in, and that kind of has ramification for the different capacities you can look at. And then I'm also very interest in the, interested in um, um, the notion of compositionality and uh, reviving old debates about... Um, connectionist systems and whether connectionist systems, uh, so artificial neural networks, um, might be uh, said to uh, possess uh, compositionally structured representations. Um, and uh, what that says in return about how we might think about the human capacity for uh, having compositionally structured representations and processing representations compositionally. So this is a whole uh, large literature and whole discussion. We probably don't have time to get into the details, but that's one thing I'm thinking about, and I, I think it's an exciting avenue of research. Um, I'm also thinking about the, the, the kind of semantic competence of language models, generally speaking, and uh, on the more syntactic side of things, I'm thinking about... Uh, what the recent development of language models, recent progress might have might tell us 
about questions in theoretical linguistics, including uh, kind of Chomskyan arguments about language acquisition, uh, the so-called poverty of the stimulus argument um, that says that um, children might have strong in it uh, learning biases with respect to grammar in order to learn certain constructions. So could we learn in principle from language models trained on a realistic amount of data uh, and whether these language models can learn syntactic constructions? Uh, could we use that to constrain the debates on language acquisition in humans? That's another thing I'm thinking about. Um, I have a number of projects related to AI and art as well. Uh, um, there are many interesting questions there um, when it comes to recent developments of image generation algorithms and other algorithms that are now used by artists. Uh, I have a project, a side project, with an art historian colleague of mine looking at the extent to which uh, image generation algorithms understand the style of famous artists uh, beyond the kind of face value reaction when you ask DALI2 or another algorithm to generate a painting in the style of uh, Vincent van Gogh, for, for example, um, someone who's not a trained art historian might think, oh, that's a really perfectly adequate uh, output trying to mimic the style of, of an artist like Van Gogh. Uh, but uh, a trained art historian actually uh, might discern ways in which the uh, model is just latching onto certain features of a style and not others or things like that. And there are related ways in which we could quantitatively evaluate uh, that kind of thing. Um, yeah, there are many other projects, but in, <laughs> the, really the guiding thread is um, for me and what excites me moving forward is um, how can we have, again, building insp inspiration, taking inspiration from working comparative and developmental psychology, a more subtle, uh, more subtle ways to set up the comparison between humans and, and language models or other deep learning models uh, to get away from sweeping extreme claims that buy into this all or nothing attitude. Um, and methodologically, I'm very excited in particular by this kind of emerging field of research called mechanistic interpretability that involves going beyond behavioral, uh, behavioral, uh, um, uh, or behavioral claim or behavioral evaluation of the, of the models using benchmarks, for example, but actually tries to pry open these models and reverse engineer the circuits that emerge from training within these models uh, to make more causal claims about how these models are representing things and manipulating representations uh, by implementing algorithms uh, that uh, you, know, you, you can empirically discover by painstakingly reverse engineering what's happening inside these models, but you cannot a priori know the model is acquiring just by looking at the architecture of the model or its learning objective. So you really need to do this work of uh, looking at the dynamics of training, looking at what's happening during training, what the model is learning, how it's modifying its internal representations, and then what's happening in the trained model once you're doing inference on the model. Uh, and you can learn a lot from that, I think, about how these models actually work uh, and the ways in which they are not stochastic parrots, but actually uh, implement certain algorithms and uh, in some ways end up being much closer if you look at the right level of analysis to old school symbolic models in the sense that a lot of what they're doing 
if you uh, interpret it properly with this mechanistic interpretability approach, uh, ends up um, you, you know being close to being cashed out in terms of um, symbolic manipulations. Um, so uh, sometimes people try to frame discussions about connectionist models of this like absolute dichotomy between symbolic models and sub-symbolic connectionist models. Um, but what's exciting about these models, I think, is that they end up um, developing, acquiring through training some uh, mechanisms that can do things like viable binding, binding viables to values of things that classically were thought to be only possible in classical symbolic models. But I'll, I'll stop here. It's already a long. There are a lot of fascinating insights coming from the mechanistic interpretability direction. So, well, I have been a very excited follow of your work and will continue to be following it with a lot of interest. So, Professor Miller, I do want to thank you for being so generous with your time today and for speaking with me. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed this conversation. And that is a wrap, my friends. As I mentioned at the start of the episode, you can subscribe to The Gradient on Substack to receive not just this podcast, but also our articles and newsletters directly to your email. You can also visit us at thegradient.pub where you'll find all of that, as well as more information about The Gradient and how you could even contribute if you're interested. And finally, if you enjoyed this episode, we would really appreciate your feedback. If you'd like to leave a comment or review, we'd love to know how we can make this series more interesting and informative to you. And with all that, I'll leave you until the next episode.